Let's open our Bibles, remain standing as we honor the reading of the Word of God to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, and uh, we're going to read today verses 15 through 22 together and study that in a sermon titled, The Things That Are God's. Let's hear from God's Word. Matthew 22, verse 15, I'm reading from the ESV. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you're true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Render, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him. And went away. This is the reading of God's holy word. May he write its truths on our hearts this morning. Let's ask him to do that right now. And once again in prayer, Father, help us. Help us to grasp this text. Lord, it's simple and yet it's so profound. And I pray that through it, Lord, you would use me even in the midst of my weaknesses to give your people encouragement and strength through the preaching of your word. Pray that more than anything, we would see Jesus clearly today and that in seeing him, we would grow, we would know him more, we would be more like him. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated and keep your Bible open there. We're back in Matthew. Pastor David brought us back uh, last week by uh, going through the parable of the wedding garments and Now we're back into Matthew that we'll be in for quite a while again and hopefully uh, wrap it up this year, Lord willing. And we're in a very interesting section. Uh, We're in the midst of Passion Week. And we're, again, Passion Week is, I think Pastor David said last week, it's going to be a long section where there's a lot happens during this week. And so we've already seen much happen, but really the thing that Matthew is getting us to, which let me remind you what Matthew's been after all along, as we've been teaching through this for the last year and a half or two years almost now, Matthew wants us to see Jesus. He wants us to know who Jesus really is. And he's writing primarily to a Jewish audience, and he's wanting them to know this is your Messiah. This is the, the king. It is the gospel of the kingdom, and uh, as, as we're looking and learning who Jesus is, today's passage, though, and not only today's, but the next several passages to come aren't just going to show us who Jesus is, but they're also, it's also going to show us who unredeemed man is. What does the depths of depravity look like? And we're going to see it in particular in the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the the elders, the Herodians, 
all of these elites in Jerusalem who are now really ticked off at Jesus. Remember, Jesus had already ridden triumphantly into the city of Jerusalem. He was celebrated by those from Galilee and the ones from Jerusalem were thrown off. Like, who is this guy? He goes into the temple and he overturns tables of the money changers. He kicks people out. He comes in with this authority, and, and we saw in chapter 21 that the chief priests and the elders come up and actually ask him, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Who do you think you are that you just get to come into the temple and, and do all these things? Who do you think you are? And they ask him, and you might remember he doesn't answer. He answers them by a question. Remember he asked them, well, the baptism of John, was it of God or from man? He's so amazing. They didn't answer. He says, well, then I'm not going to answer you either. He, he ends up telling parables. In the, you remember the parable of the two sons? Father told them to go to the field. One said, I will, and then he didn't. The other says, no, I won't, and then he did. He says, which one was right? They, they realized um, when Jesus told them that truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you, they begin to realize something here. He's talking about them. <laughs> Tells the parable of the tenants. Remember the vineyard that uh, the owner leases out and the guys, the, the, the servants rise up and eventually kill the the, uh, all the, the, the ones who were taking care of it, and then they kill the son. Jesus tells them in chapter 21, verse 33, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. They knew that he was speaking about them. Last week, many called, but few chosen. Who are the ones that had come into the feast without garments. Jesus is, in essence, upping the ante every time he talks to the religious leaders at this point. The conflict is getting deeper and deeper. The music just is starting. It's like, it's like watching a Rocky movie. <laughs> you notice in all the Rocky movies, the, you know, you the first couple rounds, they show the boxing match, and they're going at it, and all of a sudden, but then the music starts, right? The bell, dun, 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 and then it's just this battle. That's literally what's going on in front of us, except they're swinging and missing. <laughs> Jesus is doing all the damage. Now, in just a little bit, he's going to put his gloves down. He's going to allow them win, if you will. But on the third day, we know what happens. So there's some exciting parts coming up. But this battle is just ramping up. And actually, once we get here into chapter uh, 23, it's a whole chapter of Jesus going after the, the religious leaders with all of these woes. So that's, that's where we're heading. Today, this ever-increasing conflict is seen with an issue dealing with taxes. And in it, I've broken it up into four parts. Those are your four points in your notes this morning. One, the misleading plot, see in verse 15. Two, the mischievous partnership that we'll see in verse 16. 
three, the malicious predicament in verses 17 and 18. And fourthly, the marvelous prescription at the end in verses 19 through 22. Let's go back through this passage today. It, it, it's very simple, but it's, it's deep and profound. So uh, read it with me again. Verse 15, then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. They start to scheme. Um, they're going to want to entrap him. And so they, can you see him? There's just they're, they're trying really hard and they, they can't get him to say what they want him to say. They can't get him to do what they want him to do. He won't answer their questions. So they, they come apart for a little bit and they start plotting. They start scheming. And they want to do something with him. They want to do what? They want to entangle him in his words. And so, so they're going to come up with an ingenious question. They're going to come up with something that's going to either pit him against Rome as an insurrectionist and surely get him arrested, hopefully even killed, or he's going to say something that's going to put him out of a, the good favor with the good Jewish people of Jerusalem. Either way, they've got him. They're going to tear him down. They're going to try it with a question about taxes, which was a huge concern in Israel, had been since about 86 when Rome came in and just took over and started taxing. They desired to entangle him in his words, so they craft a devious plot to question him and to force an answer. They're really after him. Mark tells us, way back in Mark 3, verse 6, that the Pharisees went out immediately, held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. They've been after this for quite some time. And is it any surprise? Psalm 2, the psalmist asked the question, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. That's exactly what's going on here. These rulers are getting together. They're, they're taking counsel against the Lord, the psalmist says, and against his anointed, his Messiah. Why? What's behind it all? Saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. See, it goes back to the authority question that they asked Jesus about in chapter 21. Who, who gives you the right who gives you the authority? What makes you think you've got it? Little do they know that he is the Lord's anointed. And they, thinking themselves to be the people of God, to be the, the leaders of the people of God, are actually working day and night against God himself. Wanting this authority of God for themselves, wanting to burst their bonds apart, cast away their cords, refuse obedience to the Lord. We see a misleading plot developing. Secondly, we see the mischievous partnership that is made in this, in this, uh, in this plot. It says in verse 16 that they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. And I find it interesting. Here's the 
Pharisees, and perhaps we, we doesn't say why they did not go themselves. I kind of think it's because they're off licking their wounds. They don't want to look as foolish as they've already looked in front of him. Or perhaps it's just part of their strategic scheming to get somebody that doesn't have their official garb on, and so they, they get some of their students. Perhaps in plain clothes, and they, they're concealed, and they're going to use that to trap him, and they send him, send their disciples, their students to Jesus, along with, notice, the Herodians. Along with the Herodians. Now, if you know anything about Jewish ancient culture like this, the Pharisees and the Herodians were about as opposite as Trump and Biden. <laughs> They're like, this is like, you know, as far on, 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 on different sides of the spectrum, politically and religiously, as you can get. The Herodians were a political movement who actually followed the Herods. The Herods were half-Jews who were set up as governors of Jewish realms. And so Herod, right, Herod was a king, but he was, a, he was like a little kingling, if you will. He was put as a governor under Caesar, and his allegiance was to Caesar. His allegiance was to Rome, not to the Jewish people. The Jews, the, the good Jews of the day, hated the Roman occupation. They wanted to throw off those bonds, and all they wanted was their freedom back, and they, they hated all of the, the horrible Gentile things that came along with Roman rulership over them. And yet, united in hatred of Jesus, the Pharisees unite with the Herodians to create this unholy alliance. What do they say? The, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. <laughs> That's what's happening here. They're desperately wanting to silence Jesus. And this is not unique to this time period, is it? If you've studied history in any way, or even if you just read today's newspapers, you'll see that politics and theology have often united in attempts to silence Christ. To quiet his message. To stop reading this holy book. To stop talking about the need of a savior. We want to be done with that. Let's just be done with this Jesus, this, this guy who demands my all. This man who, who feels that he can come in and just command what he wants. Let's be done with that, Jesus. Let's be done with this story of, of sin. What is sin anyway? Aren't we free to do whatever we want? So even to this day, you'll see alliances of people that seem to be on completely different pages. I've looked at it even in our own country. You'll, you, you look at, at certain even political situations where you'll see a political leader who, who's a Muslim, for instance, aligning with a, with a, uh, a leader, of a, an activist of the LGBTQ plus community, and, and on the same page, and it doesn't make sense to me. But it does when you understand what an unholy alliance looks like. The enemy 
will use whoever he wants to get whatever he wants done. They're desperately trying to silence Christ. So they come, their disciples come, the Herodians come, and they say to him, teacher, listen to this. Teacher, which by the way, that was not just a common term that was used. Teacher was reserved for a rabbi who had a recognized office, who had the training, who, who, who it wasn't just thrown around. And so they call him by a very respectful term, teacher, we know that you're true and that you teach the way of God truthfully. And you don't care about anyone's opinion if you're not swayed by appearances. Talk about saying the best of things with the worst of motives. It's flattery. They come to him, and listen, they come to him thinking he's like them. We're going to butter him up. We're going to... We just put some butter on his toast. He's going to get excited. You know, forget this, the butter. We're going to put a little jam on top as well. We're going to get it all smooth and nice, and he's going to eat that down, and he's going to be in our hands. They think he's like them, swayed by flattery. Ever been swayed by flattery? Someone you think meant well, and they're just telling you all how great you are and, and the truth is we really like hearing how great we are. Someone just butters us up and comes really, really close to us and then all of a sudden everything falls apart. You realize that that person was not sincere. Jesus is not like them. <laughs> they don't know him very well, do they? Teacher, we, we know that you're true. We, we know you teach the way of God truthfully. They don't believe a word of it. It does sound like the way even some who claim Christ today talk. What do these guys know about the way of God? Yet it's like a lot of times Christians will say, I want to follow the way of God. Yes, I, I want to hear the way of God. I want to I walk in his paths until, until there's that really hard commandment. Until there's that really tough person to love. Until there's that pull of the flesh that I just don't want to get rid of. We know you're true. You teach the way of God truthfully. You, you don't care about anyone's opinion. You're not swayed by men like we are. You're not swayed by appearances. This mischievous partnership has tried to butter Jesus up with flattery. And then thirdly, they try to put him in a malicious predicament. Verse 17, after flattering him, they say, tell us then what you think. We really want to know what you think, teacher. You're an amazing, amazing godly man. We have the utmost respect for you. So please, please, we really want to know. They don't care. They're acting like they want to know. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful 
to pay taxes to Caesar or not? That is the crux question of the day. And you notice how they frame it. They must have spent a lot of time thinking about the question because they're framing it in such a way that there's really no other answer but yes or no. Is it lawful, yes or no, to pay taxes to Caesar? Is it lawful or not? They think they got Jesus in a corner now. Either he's going to endorse tax revolt, which is going to get him in trouble with the Romans, and the Herodians will pounce on that. See, we know he's a traitor. Arrest him. Execute him. Either he'll do that or he's going to endorse compliance with Rome, which is going to get him into trouble with all of the Jews. He's going to have to offend somebody here. And the Pharisees are ready to exploit his answer to just undermine all his popularity with the people that, that, that he stole from them. Again, these issues of tax, taxes in, in, in these days was very controversial in Judea and in, in Jerusalem. There was uh, actually in, in Acts chapter 5, Gamaliel, one of the religious leaders, speaks of this tax revolt by a guy named Judas, who was from Galilee, who he was a tax rebel, that he was one who stood and said, we will not pay the Roman tax. Now, the tax that's talking about here is called the poll tax, or a head tax. And it was an interesting type of a tax because it really showed, if you will, subjugation, because it was a tax on the head of every single person that lived in that area. So every single person in that area, and it's why, remember when Jesus was born in Luke 2 where all the world was, a census was taken so all the world could be taxed? That's what they were doing. They're counting heads. Why? Because every head demands one denarius. A denarius was a coin that we're going to see here in just a little bit that was equivalent to about one day's uh, a common laborer's wage. And that was what Rome exacted, among other things, that's what they demanded from the people that they were ruling over. And so Judas was this one guy who resisted that tax. He, he at one point refused to pay it, that I will not pay it. And, and it wasn't and only because it was a religious thing. I mean, that, was, that was a big part of it. Also, it had to do with the coin itself, which we'll talk about, because the coin itself had idolatrous undertones. And Judas had rebelled and was bloodily resisted. He raised himself a group to, to rise up and revolt against Rome, and Rome came in and crushed them and had just thousands of men crucified for miles, crosses lining Roman roads all around. It was a serious issue. It was a religious issue. It was also political concern for the Jews. The tribute tax or the poll tax imposed by the Romans was, again, an assertion of their authority. Every year you were reminded that you have an occupier. It was religious not only because a lot of the Jews really thought the Romans should not be in their holy land, but again, the coin themselves had religious significance that it made... Uh, it made uh, Mention, for instance, that Tiberius, the Roman emperor, was the high priest, that he was the divine son of God, son of the divine Augustus, was the literal inscription on the coin. 
So all the, these issues are going on, and you can imagine the crowds surrounding them, and let's not forget where they are at the moment. They're still in the temple. So they're on the temple grounds. All these things are taking place right there, and, and, and these guys have come up to Jesus to ask him this question, very controversial question, and now they're awaiting his answer. What will he say? In verse 18, but Jesus, aware of their malice, he knows they're malicious. He knows the heart of men. He sees right through their facade. And so he asked them, why put me to the test? Why, why are you doing this? He asked them this question that forces them back to their motives. They were envious of Jesus' popularity. They were envious of the fact that the crowds had, had laid the palm branches down for him. That so many loved him. They were envious of his power, envious of his words, envious of his authority. So he asked, why put me to the test? Here man is testing him. They don't realize he'd already been through the, the great test of Satan himself in the wilderness. Where he told them, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And now mere, mere men are challenging him and putting him to the test. Their malicious ways he says, you hypocrites. Hypocrite, two-faced is literally the term. It's, a, it's an acting terminology. It's like putting on different masks. And I, I, I'm one way when I face you, and I'm one way when I face you. He knows that they're posing as actors as if they actually wanted an answer Actually, we, we really want to learn, Jesus. We really want to know. No, you don't. I know your malicious motives. Hypocrites. If you think Jesus is starting to get mean, just wait till chapter 23. <laughs> Point four. Jesus answers and gives us a marvelous prescription. Verse 19, he says, show me the coin, the tax. You have a question. You want to know, should we pay taxes? Is it lawful? And by that, it's talking about Jewish law. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? A carefully crafted question. And notice how Jesus responds. Show me the coin. Now, I think it's, it's kind of interesting to know Jesus doesn't have a denarius on him. <laughs> but they do. Again, the denarius itself by some very orthodox Jews were, they, they wouldn't even keep them on their person because it had the image of the Caesar on it. It was a graven image, and therefore they saw it as a violation of the law of God. It spoke of Caesar worship. And so they, they would not even carry them with them, but here these guys do. 
They don't care. They're willing to handle what is offensive to some Jews because, hey, it's money. Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. The denarius, again, was issued by Tiberius, who was the Roman emperor. And the coins were minted in Rome. The denarius was the only coin. There were other coins used in the region. And that's one of the things the Romans did. They, they would allow different areas that they conquered to kind of keep some of their own culture and even their own religion as long as they followed whatever Rome demanded. And one of their demands was every year, every single person in the Roman Empire that we, that we uh, control is going to give one denarius per person back, Caesar. The coin was inscribed with Caesar's image on it, stamped with his image, his head, and it said, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. And then on the tail's side of the coin, you saw a little picture of him sitting on a throne, acting in his role as the high priest. And so because of, again, all of these things, a lot of these Jews didn't even have it. Jesus doesn't have it. He says to them, show me the coin. They bring him a denarius. You can see Jesus' picture in your mind. He, he grabs the coin and he takes a look at it. And then he asks a question. And he asks a question even a little child could answer. It's like giving a quarter to a five-year-old. Who is that? Hopefully they know, right? Who's on the quarter? George Washington, thank you for being brave enough to answer, Joe. Everyone's thinking, I don't remember. <laughs> oh, George Washington's on the quarter, right? We know that. Every three-year-old's going to know that, right? Most. Some. <laughs> so, <coughs> he asked a question. Whose inscription, and, or excuse me, whose likeness and inscription is this? Here's a picture. Who's on the picture? And they said, Caesar's. And so he says to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. It's pretty simple. Show me the coin. There's a picture on this coin. Who is that guy? Oh, that's Caesar. Well, then render, and that word render, it's an interesting word because it doesn't just mean give. Some translations just say give to Caesar. The word render is good because it literally means give back. It has to do with, not, to, not with giving away like a gift. That's one form of giving. It has to do with, with payback, if you will. Like you were given this and now you owe it back. So there's a sense of obligation that comes with this word, render. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Don't just give him, give it back to him. Caesar's already given something to you. Clearly, he's given you the coin. He made it. He, he put his image on it. He wrote his name on it. He produced it for you. In general, Caesar's also done a, a lot more things for you as the, the governor, if you will, of, of the region He's provided order. 
He's provided safety in which you operate and in which you travel. He's provided roads for you for for trade where you can go all throughout the Roman Empire. He's created, if you will, this Pax Romana, the Roman peace, where there was travel and, and safety and all of these really good things. You could go all throughout the Mediterranean world and be safe in this time because the Romans were protecting There was a kind of stability, a kind of safety that was given, yes, even by Caesar. Since the time of of Nebuchadnezzar, for ages, the Jews had been under a series of, of Gentile empires. And Jeremiah's instruction regarding Nebuchadnezzar were the instructions for Israel's relation to all of these empires. What were they to do under their Gentile rulers? They were to seek the peace of the city. So the basis for saying that the the Jews here should give back Caesar's coin to Caesar is it's Caesar's. It bears his image, so give give it back to him. If Caesar wants his little coin, give him his little coin. But he doesn't stop there, does he? Render, therefore, things that are Caesar's to Caesar and to God the things that are God's. Now notice, Jesus wants us to think through this because he doesn't give the scope of what that means. you got to become a student of of the Bible to realize, well, what does that actually mean? But it's not to... Difficult to figure out. You see, if, if we should give Caesar his little coin back because his image is stamped on it, let me ask you this question. Whose image is stamped on you? What has God given you? Everything. Everything. Again, the verb is, is give back. So Jesus isn't merely telling them to give what belongs to God, but give back what Yahweh has already first given. And Paul asked the question beautifully in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? Is there anything? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? What did God give you? Did he give you life? Did he give you breath? Is everything you own not from his hand? Isn't everything his? It's all his. And see, because we bear the divine image, we are then to give back to God what he has given us, which is what? Ourselves. And all of the worship that comes with what he's done and who he is. There's not one thing that we have not received, and so we must give everything that we have to God, the original giver. And here's where these two begin to work together, rendering to Caesar and the things that are Caesar's and rendering to God the things that are God's. Because when you realize that all of life, including Caesar's rights and Caesar's power, And Caesar's possessions, when you realize all of it, even all of that belongs to God, then you're going to be in a proper frame of mind to actually render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. 
when you know that all is God's, then anything you render to Caesar, you will render for the Lord's sake, for God's sake. Any authority you ascribe to Caesar, you'll ascribe to him for the sake of, of God's greater authority. Any obedience you, you render to Caesar, you're rendering for the sake of the obedience that you owe to God first. Any claim Caesar makes on you, you test by the infinitely higher claim that God has on you. And in the deepest, most simple way, Jesus says this sentence, but it, it has so much depth to it. Rendering to Caesar is therefore limited and defined by rendering to God. What is, is Caesar's is determined by the fact that everything is God's first. And it only becomes Caesar's by God's permission and design. What we're talking about here is what we spent a while talking about over the last couple months. This is a biblical worldview issue. This is sphere sovereignty. This is God, ruler of the universe, delegating his authority into certain spheres, one of them which is government. And in that, his, his delegated authority is limited in scope. Caesar or Uncle Sam has rights. And, and he is God's minister to, to work out his authority in his sphere. And that's, you know, the, the, those spheres do connect with other spheres, but he has a certain authority that, for instance, the authority of the church doesn't have. Caesar has the sword. We talked about that. And that's the nature of, of the state is to bear the sword. And so that's why it's so dangerous when the state steps out of its God-given authority into other spheres and tries to dominate the family and tries to dominate the church and tries to, to take its sword because it brings its sword with it everywhere it goes. That's why it's very dangerous. And so... What's not happening here, he's not setting up, um, a lot of times people have taken this passage to, to mean that Jesus is somehow setting up two spheres of life that are completely sealed off from one another with no overlap whatsoever, right? There, there's the, the realm of Caesar, which is the realm of submission to, to brute earthly power, and then there's the realm of, of worship, the spiritual realm, the realm of the things of God in which we give God his due. And they have nothing whatsoever to do with each other. That's what some say falsely. But what Jesus says is much deeper. Because if we give ourselves to God and give back only what Caesar gives, then Jesus is setting limits to our submission to Caesar. Which is why the apostles, for instance, in Acts, can when their master, their, their state governor tells them, do not preach the gospel. They say, oh, no, it's better to obey God than men. There are limits to your authority, Mr. Governor. Yes, we owe you your coin. And that's the answer, and, and that is the answer for Christians too. In a some. In summarizing, pay your taxes. <laughs> Do we like it? No. But when you understand what Jesus is saying here, 
and, 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 and that it gets even, even deeper than this because what, what we're looking at as Christians is, and so many times we wrestle with, especially as good freedom-loving Americans, right? We don't want anyone on our, you know, stepping on our necks. And I don't want that either. I want freedom. But political freedom is not the end all. And the gospel is a gospel that not only applies in the United States of America, which quite honestly, we take our freedoms way too lightly. But the gospel, this same gospel and the same truth applies to the Christian in North Korea. It applies to the, the young woman in, in prison in China sharing her faith in Christ. It applies to the, the, the wife and kids of the man in, in Cuba who was executed preaching the gospel. These realities apply everywhere. And, and here's the beautiful truth about being a Christian. Is that, and, and, and th that this was written in an age of a Roman despot. So much so that Caesar actually not only demanded coin, which Jesus says, give him his coin. He demanded worship. And that's the one thing Jesus is saying you are not to do. He, you owe him a coin because that's his. Give it back to him. You owe God alone worship. You owe God alone allegiance. You see, being in Christ, knowing him, Worshiping him, being his, being a Christian brings true freedom. It brings true freedom. Whether you're in the United States or, or, or in North Korea, you're free. This is why Paul can say in like Romans 13, 7, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. It's why Peter, in 1 Peter 2, can, in essence, tell us that giving Caesar his coin back doesn't show subjugation. It actually shows freedom in Christ. It actually shows that we Christians live with open hands. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake, in, in 1 Peter 2, verse 13. That's Peter's way of saying everything is God's. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Verse 15, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. You see, when you've been set free in Christ, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that earthly submission to governing authorities somehow limits you. That's actually worship to God is what God is saying. Give God everything, and a part of his everything is honoring the governing authorities. <coughs> and you're free to do that. When we're set free in Christ, to trust him, body and soul, we're now free also to trust that earthly authorities are only in place 
by his permission, by his sovereign hand. God does it. Do we trust him? See, Christians are transformed by the gospel. Holding to the gospel doesn't make us problematic revolutionaries, but humble and honorable citizens. We're, we're to be a law-abiding people. We're to pay our taxes. I say it. You should drive the speed limit. Convicted all week, man, studying this on that one. Cut our grass. We sweep our sidewalks. If the county of San Diego comes in and tells me, hey, you got way too much debris in your backyard, I don't say, well, who do you think you are to tell me how much debris I can have? I just go clean it up, which I probably should have done anyway. <laughs> the disposition of the Christian heart is to comply as unto the Lord. Every opportunity before us is an opportunity to worship God. But we never render to any authority under God absolute allegiance. He alone gets absolute allegiance. We, we never give unlimited, unconditional obedience except to God. We never say, I submit to you because you're my final authority. We always say it's for Christ's sake, which then turns our obedience to human authorities to worship God. This is the Christian ethic. This is how, like in, we studied a while back in Matthew 5, 38, Jesus can say, you've heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who's evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Well, that's not right. You're free. You're God's. With regard to taxes, Jesus says giving to God what is God's means giving to Caesar what is Caesar's. Jesus stands and answers their question in a way that they were blown away by. He, in essence, is saying, I'm not a tax rebel. I'm, I'm not a zealot. I'm not anything you think I am. But neither does he urge compromise. He leaves his disciples with this deep ethic and politic to follow. It combines submission and resistance. It recognizes that Caesar has given and it gives back to Caesar, but only what God allows. It's a politics, if you will, which they say, well, Jesus isn't political. Sure he is. He's a king. <laughs> you better believe he is. And his politics, though, is a politics of revolutionary subordination and submission to the powers that be as a means of resisting the powers that be. It's the politics of Jesus himself who, who submits to a Roman cross in order to remake Rome and all the world. 
in order to make all the kingdoms the kingdoms of our Lord Christ. And so they respond, verse 22. They heard it, they marveled. They're amazed, as they should be. Look what it says next. Marveled, and they left him and wept. should have done the opposite. They shouldn't have just merely marveled, wow, what a great answer, Jesus. They should have worshipped. They should have said, what a Savior. What, what a great true high priest. What a true divine Lord. Not the guy pictured on the coin. The man standing in front of us. They should not have left him to go away, but they should have clinged to him. They should have followed him. Should have declared love so amazing, so divine. It demands my soul, my life, my all. Oh, I worship you. I, I give back to God because he has given us life and breath and salvation and sanctification and his son and his spirit. I give back to God my worship, my adoration, my allegiance, my treasure, my talents, my heart, my head, my, my body, my soul, my all. Back to the one whose image was stamped upon them. The image was of Caesar stamped on the coin. The image of God stamped on Humanity, they missed the third image, the very image of the invisible God standing right in front. I pray this morning we would not miss it. We would not just step back and look at Jesus and think, wow, that was pretty neat pretty wise, but that we would understand the depths of rendering to God things that are God. I encourage you to allow, by grace, the Spirit of God to search your heart right now. Call the music team to come and get us ready for the communion. Philippians 2, verse 5, talks of this Christ says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name, at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you see the humility? Do you see the stooping low to serve, to give? And the exaltation of God 
to lift him high, to lift his name high. This is the one to whom we owe everything. This is the one who has given everything. May we respond in like kind. You say, what shall I give him? Give him your full confidence, your full trust. Stop worrying. Stop getting so mad because you got to give Caesar a coin. <laughs> give him his coin and go to sleep. <laughs> Don't go to bed mad every night because the political battles, because of the anxiety of the world. Don't go to bed mad because Caesar wants his coin back. Go to bed at peace, full confidence, full resting in him. Why? Because here's where we're going. Revelation 11:15. then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever. You can rest in that, amen? Oh, Father, help us to rest. Help us to trust. Help us to see what it means to render to you the things that are God's. Lord, that's all of us, every part of ourselves, the whole of ourselves, body, mind, spirit, soul, weakness, strength. All we are has come from you. We are nothing apart from you. And it's only because of your son Christ came to this earth, gave up himself, all of himself, taking the punishment that we deserve. He died on the cross for nothing he had done, for what we had done. He took our sins, paid for them to the full, and he rose again showing his power. God, we get to celebrate this right now. We get to do it with joy. We get to recognize that, as your word says, this is the cup of blessing that we bless participation in the blood of Christ, to know that we're, we're fully forgiven, sins completely paid for because Jesus rose from the dead. All of it, all of it, all sin, buried in the deepest sea that can never be found, removed from us as far as the east is from the west. Oh, thank you. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for renewal, restoration. Thank you for the gospel. Help us to come now freely, willingly, joyfully to remember your death. To drink this cup with you till we see you again face to face. And we get to drink it together. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.